open it up with me to Matthew 21. We're going to look at Luke 19, the text that we have just read together, but I want us to have an overview of the, good, uh, the, the idea of Palm Sunday. It's a tremendous stewardship, right, of a pastor to be able to say, this is a particularly special time in the year for all believers, and so I don't want to miss this opportunity to encourage you to think about what it means to be a believer and what it means to have the king introduced, the king is coming, and what that should mean to all of us and how we repent and turn to him. So what I want to start with is I want to start with an encouragement as we look at each of these texts. I'm going to read those, so open up your Bible here to Matthew 21. We'll start there. Um, We've already heard Luke chapter 19. That's where I'm going to preach from, and you'll see notes at pbcpowdersville.org underneath the sermon, and you can see notes and download those if you want. But we'll also read here from Mark and John, because it will be important for us to understand the story and how they all work together. This is found in all four Gospels. This is a very special day in the big picture of God's plan, and I want us to rejoice together and have great joy in what we're going to read. So Matthew 21, look with me, read with me. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the roads, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now turn over to Mark and look at Mark chapter 11. Hosanna, Jesus saves today. Jesus saves today. They're crying out, this is the day we're going to be saved. And they seem to acknowledge him as king, but they speak of him as a prophet, which is kind of interesting. From Matthew, they seem a bit confused. And we could be a bit confused as readers when we see there's a donkey and a colt. And is Jesus somehow balancing on both of these animals, beasts of burden at one time? Well, let's see. Maybe we can resolve that. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and, he, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they said to them, what Jesus has said, and, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches And they had cut from the fields, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. 
And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. One more. Only mention of a cult there, not to distract you too much. They seemed to get it that he was supposed to be king, because they were connecting, it to, connecting him to David, but still we see some great confusion among the crowds. Look over at John as our last, which will give us a full grasp of what's going on from the text. John 12, look at verse 12. John 12, verse 12 through 19. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees And went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Okay, they got the kingdom thing, king thing. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not answer these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowds that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from from the dead contributed to bear witness, or continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowds went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Before you turn away from John, look at John. We're still there together. Look at verse 15. I just want to answer the donkey cult thing. There's this statement which is quoted from Zechariah 9.9 which says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so actually in the Hebrew, the connection word is describing the type of animal that Jesus rode on. It wasn't a, a description of two animals, but of one animal that is particular a colt that no one rode on before. When you read it in Matthew, it seems to be two donkeys. And so people come up with the idea that maybe one donkey held all the coats and was the one that kind of enticed the other donkey to come up behind him um, and actually behind her, as it would be. And yet we do know this, that this colt, no one ever sat on it. I, I just can't imagine being the little kid that tried to jump on that colt and unable to jump. It's like a magnet, you know, trying to push it together. It just couldn't happen because God sovereignly arranged that no one would sit on that colt. Just things like that kind of fascinate me. But this is what I want to encourage you to consider together. We're going to look at two different aspects of this story. We're going to look at the reactions to the coming king. How did the people respond to the coming king? And then we're going to look at the responses from the coming king. So the kids that are with us right now This is back to what we used to do. You're in here for this first part. I'm going to cover this first point, and then we're going to sing, and we'll dismiss you to junior church, and then I'll come back up and cover that second point with application connected to it. But kids, we're really glad to have you in here, and this is really intentional that you would be in here with us, and I'll tell you why. Because this church is a family of people from all different age groups. So it's not just for adults. It's for kids, and it's not just for one group. It's multi-generational, that's the goal. Multi-ethnic would be the desire and the goal. The goal is for us to understand what it's like to be a family. So I'm so glad that you're here with us. Turn over in your Bible now to Luke, which will be our text for this morning, and we're going to consider from Luke 19, 28 through 44, the reactions to the king, the coming king. Now I get different types of reactions when I come home after being in the office, whether at school or at church, When I come into the door, it's almost a guarantee that a couple things will happen. Number one, 
my youngest son, our youngest son, Silas, will come running at me and give me a big old bear hug, right? That's what we do. He comes and gives me a big hug, and I love seeing him. It's super exciting. Judah will usually, my second oldest, will usually get up from the couch and walk over and give me a fist pump. The rest of them have varied responses. Is dad here? Heather is always, hi, honey. Good to have you home. And then I go and kiss her, of course. That's a necessity as I walk into the house. But um, the rest of them are kind of whatever. The dogs will bark. They bark at anyone that comes into that house. Uh, They particularly bark at me. And I was really taken off guard when Elijah joked around with us while we were sitting around the couch. And he said to Duke, one of our dogs, a -a Bernadoodle, yeah, a doodle, yeah, said, get him to me. And he started to attack me. I was like, what? Whoa, no. And I got up. You're like, you can't. And, he, and then he called him off. What power, okay? <laughs> when we think of reactions to the coming king, the different ways people responded, I wanted to show you just as an illustration that I found very endearing, this illustration of soldiers coming home and how their pets respond. Don't worry, this won't go on forever, but this is just an idea to get you kind of thinking about reacting to someone who's special. Okay, and it goes on, but it won't go on. Don't worry, I have it cut. It will go on for another five minutes. You know, you know how these videos could go. But, oh, it does have the Great Dane. This is uh, interesting for a family member of mine. How would you like that? <laughs> okay. That's happiness, true joy. <laughs> all right, so this is what we're going to see in different responses. We all respond to Jesus in different ways, and they all responded in different ways. And if you look in Luke chapter 19, you're going to see the ultimate, um, the immediate response of the disciples in obedience. And I want you to see this, and I think it's highlighted in this first part where we see here that their response is the disciples obeyed him, and they did this by bringing to Jesus exactly what he asked them to bring him. So if we look here in Luke chapter 19, Jesus gives some clear instructions about what to do. He tells them that you're supposed to go up and approach Notice, in teams of two, Jesus rarely sent them out one by one. Judas went out on his own, and everyone thought he was going to go take care of the poor. But he usually sent them out in groups of two. It says in verse 28, When they had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. Now, this is a pattern we see throughout Scripture, Jesus sending them in two. We found it in Matthew 21 verse 1, in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And of course, I'm wondering, which two of the disciples had the distinct privilege of going and fetching that colt? You want to know the answer to that? We have no idea, is the answer to that. But we do know, in preparing the Passover, later on, he again sends them out in two, in Matthew 26, 19, in Mark 14, 13. In Luke 22, so if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 19, if you turn over to Luke 22, verse 8, it does mention which two of the disciples were sent by Jesus to help identify the guy, the man carrying the pitcher that would lead him up into the Passover, and it was Peter and John. So I wonder, is it always the same two Jesus sends to accomplish his mission to do what he's going to do? Later on in Luke 24, we have two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Cleopas is mentioned as one of them. We're not really sure if that's a reference to Peter. I don't think it is. I think it's one of the, the general 
number of disciples, but they're always going in twos. That's kind of fascinating. Why? Perhaps because when Jesus calls you to do something, it seems so ostentatious, so big, so bold. So who in the world is going to let me have his donkey just because I tell him I need your donkey? Go in two, encourage each other, make it happen. Jesus sent people out in twos. I think there's something about that accountability and that encouragement, but he does send them out in two. So they went in two, and they went into a village in front of you. He says, you're going to enter, you're going to find a colt tide. So look around. There, when you see a particular house with a colt tide, that's the house I want you to go to. No one's ever sat on that one before. Probably not anything on its back. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, as if he didn't know, he knew, someone was going to ask. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You're going to say, the Lord has need of it. Pretty simple. The master has need of it. Implying perhaps that Jesus had a relationship with the owner of the colt and knew the person that lived in that house and said, the master has need of it. We don't know, but it was enough. And the disciples followed Jesus exactly as Jesus asked them to. They obeyed him. They went in groups of two. They went and found a house with a colt tied by it. And they started to untie it, and the master of the house came out and said, what are you doing? He says, the Lord has need of it, and that was good enough for him. And so we see here, they brought it to Jesus. It, notice, so they, those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, colt, they set Jesus on it. They did everything that Jesus asked them to do. Now, I hope that's our response to the king. All right, I just want to leave it right there and say that would be great if when we knew Jesus is here, we'll follow you, Jesus. Whatever you say, we will do. Now, as Jesus told us what he wants us to do, all throughout the Bible, read the Gospels. He wants us to make disciples of the nations. Are you following him in that? He wants you to be ones who shine as light in a very dark culture. Are you shining as a light? He wants you to be a peacemaker. Are you like, absolutely, even if it means i got to go right in the midst of turmoil and help provide peace. He wants you to pray for your enemies and those that persecute you. He wants you to give generously. He wants you to pray regularly. Are you following Jesus? Are you like these disciples? You're the king. You said it. That settles it. Thanks for bringing someone along with me, the partner. Thus, the local church could be an application of this. And and I I appreciate that partnership in it. But are you one that obeys? I think most of us would say, yeah, kind of. But let me tell you something. There's no yeah, kind of. Either you are or you're not. Notice the second response. The crowds welcomed him. This seems to be a really positive response because as they come along, notice the statement that they make. And I want us to look at the very words spoken by each of these groups. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They seem pretty happy. They seem pretty excited. Why are they so ready to receive King Jesus. Well, the crowds welcomed him, I'm going to suggest to you, because they knew Jesus was able to do great signs and wonders. I read to you, we read together John chapter 12, verses 17 through 18, and what this group, this crowd had already seen is Jesus raise a man from the dead. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And they watched Jesus do amazing miracles. So when they see, here comes the king, they're thinking, this is going to be good for me. Because they hoped 
they would receive something great from Jesus. Look at Luke 24, verse 21. Luke 24, you're in Luke. Turn over to Luke 24, look at verse 21. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus were a little discouraged. Their faces were sad. God held back his own understanding, their understanding of Jesus is the one talking to you. And notice they reveal what's going on in their motives in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were discouraged because their desire was that Jesus would redeem them from the bondage of the Roman Empire. But that didn't happen at the cross. In fact, at the cross, it seems as if they've lost and they actually stopped talking about him as a king and, and talked to him in Luke 24 more as a prophet. They also were a group of people who wanted Jesus to establish the kingdom specifically for Israel. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the group of disciples said, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he responded, It's not for you to know the times and the seasons which God has preordained. He said, but you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me. And he was presenting something even better than what they could ever imagine. But I'm suggesting to you that they initially welcomed him because they thought, this is going to be a good gig for me. He can raise the dead. He can take a, a small lunch and feed thousands of people. He can walk on water. He's the guy I want to follow because whatever I need, when, whenever I need it, he can do it if he wants to. If I ever get a sniffles or a cold or anything, he can heal me. He healed a lady who had a fever, Peter's mother-in-law. He can heal me. And he is the one who's going to redeem Israel. He is the one that's going to establish the kingdom. He's the guy that I need to follow. Unfortunately, their positive responses turn very negative. And I want you to see this. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 19, but turn over to that text in John. John chapter 12. Notice in verse 37. John 12, verse 37. This is the same group of people that said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 37 of John chapter 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Why did they not believe in him? Well, there's a couple reasons. They didn't believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, that much would be proclaimed and only a few would respond. And then again, he quotes from Isaiah that they would have blinded eyes and hardened hearts. And again, in verse 41 from Isaiah, said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Because this response by the people would bring maximum glory to God. Jesus knew that. Their unbelief would actually glorify him. It's an amazing concept as we consider it. But I want to suggest to you that they didn't quite get it. But notice where some fell into a different category. There's some that didn't believe. That's the unbelief of the masses in John 12, 37 through 41. But we also have the hidden belief of religious leaders. Look at verse 42 and 43. And by the way, if you struggle with the fear of man, listen. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Is that any of you today? Like, you, you do believe, but your belief is hidden. 
There's a group that doesn't believe because it doesn't work out the way they thought it would work out for them. You profess faith in Jesus, and then tough times hit, and then you're like, I don't know if I believe this thing in the first place. And there are others of you that do believe, but you fear man, and so you're keeping silent about it. I was thinking about the, the Gospel of John and the presentation of one of the religious leaders that I think fell into that category. The guy's name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus who is always referred to as the one who comes to Jesus by night, is introduced to us in John 3, verses 1 and 3. He comes to Jesus by night, and he asks questions. He's a seeker. Then in John chapter 7, verse 15, he stands up to all of his other fellow brother religious leaders, and he says, are you guys right in your interpretation of this situation? And they said, what, are you also a Galilean? And then later on, we see he is a true follower of Jesus, not just a fan, but a follower. He starts out a seeker. He becomes a fan, John 7, 50 through 52. And then he demonstrates himself as a follower in this Gospel of John, John 19, 38 through 39. This includes Joseph of Arimathea. And I bring that all up to you because I'm asking you this question. Where are you today? Are you in this group of, I obey Jesus in everything he says all the time? I mean, I wish that were the case for all of us. We all know that we have adjustments we need to make. My goal today is to speak the truth to you, and you listen to the Holy Spirit prodding your heart to saying, you know, I need to correct something today. But maybe you're in this crowd that you've only been a fan of Jesus when he did something good for you, but when he stopped doing what you think was good for you, you dropped off. And I want to encourage you not to just be a follower, but to embrace him as a committed a committed Christian. And Nicodemus demonstrated this. There's a great book by Kyle Eidelman called Not a Fan that I'll talk about later on in the application. But then Jesus responded, and I think this is the point of the Gospel of John. I love the book of John. It's a great place to take people to when they're trying to figure out if this Christianity thing is for them because you'll note in verses 44 through 48, Jesus gives a call to anyone who would believe. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken in my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father said to me. I'll put it in real simple terms. Jesus calls for eternal life, and he offers it to all who accept him as Lord, as the light who guides them in the darkness. He calls people to accept him as master, the light that guards them or guides them in the darkness, verse 45. And he calls them to accept him as savior, Jesus does in verses 47 through 48, eternal life offered to anyone who would accept Jesus as savior. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like John 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth the Lord, master, Jesus, savior, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall, not might, but shall be saved. And the whole point of this whole coming of Jesus was to call individual believers to know him as Savior and acknowledge him and to accomplish a work in demonstrating that he has a plan and he's working out his plan. Then we see, finally, 
the Pharisees confront him. This is the last one on this first point. Notice what they say in verse 39. Go back to Luke. Go back to Luke 19. So it seems like at this point everything's going well, right? Because the the disciples are obeying him, doing crazy things, going and grabbing a donkey from someone else, stranger's house, and saying, the Lord has need of him. Okay, fine, take him. They throw coats on him, and and they bring Jesus in, and everyone's happy. Hosanna in the highest. They're, they're, They're pumped. Things seem to be going well, but then the religious leaders look at what they say, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. There's always a wet blanket out there, isn't there? A wet blanket gives you no comfort when you're cold. You know, it's, there's always someone, a naysayer, and they served as the naysayers. Why were they so uh, mad at Jesus or so sharp with Jesus? Well, look at the words, teacher. I think it's somewhat patronizing. Rabbi, great one, the one who knows everything. He's like, yeah, whatever. And it's also threatening. Rebuke is another way of interpreting rebuke is censor your disciples. We live in a, a censor sensitive culture today, don't we? Teacher, rabbi, you great one, you know better. Censor your disciples, your followers. Why would they do this? Well, what we have already observed, and and you can note, I have these listed in the notes if you want to look at them. I'm just going to give you a couple of reasons why. One, they were threatened by him. In Matthew 21, 15, they were indignant. They They were mad at him, just flat out mad. They feared him, Mark 11, 18 through 19, They were so ticked at him, they wanted to destroy him. They not only wanted to, they were not just mad, they wanted to destroy him. And it says in John 12, 19, you see that they are gaining, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him because they thought, man, we're losing ground. No one's following us, they're following him. So they're thinking, we got to stop this guy. What were they planning on doing? Well, they planned to arrest him. They planned to destroy him. And so when, when they said this to him, it wasn't some sort of a, hey, teacher, you know, maybe you should calm them down a little bit. They actually had a lot more involved in it. There was this idea of, I'm going to confront him because I don't believe in him. And we're going to look together as, at how the king of kings responds. He has those that obey him, those that seem to welcome him, but we find out they didn't really follow him in the end. Some hidden followers, Jesus calls all people to individually repent and turn to him. And you had a group that totally hated him, wanted to destroy him, and Jesus has a word for them that I hope encourages your hearts and helps you see that he sees right into your heart. Let's ask God to help us see this together. Father, thank you for this text of scripture. And as we continue to unpack it together, I pray that you would help us to grow in our love for you and our awareness of your all-seeing eye and your call for each of us to proclaim you as king, to follow you as king. Lord, not to be hidden about it, but to be active in sharing and active in following. Bless the kids as they go on into their time of ministry and understanding of the word. I pray that they would grow in grace and knowledge of you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So open your Bible back up to Luke 19, 28 through 44, and we've looked at the reactions to the coming king, and I want us to consider the responses from the coming king. I see a couple responses from him. And I want to warn you that what I'm going to say right now may be a little new. And I don't look to try to be novel and new when I present the word of God. In fact, I'm always very cautious when that happens. But something just kind of hit me a little strange. And I I want to meditate on a, a passage here 
in the way Jesus responds. So look at Luke chapter 19 and notice his response in verse 40 when it says that he rebuked the religious leaders. This is what Jesus says. I tell you, if these were silent, referring to the crowds, referring perhaps from Matthew to the children, referring to those that lay down palm branches and in their coats, everyone that's praising him and saying salvation has come today, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I've looked at that and I've thought to myself, what in the world is he saying right here? So I want to bring that uh, to your attention. Here's a couple options for us to consider. I think the obvious one that we go to, I do right away, is somehow, in some way, the rocks are going to take on personality and inanimate becomes animate. So what has no life breaths within him will all of a sudden speak up. So if you tell them to be quiet, and if I tell everyone to be quiet, then we're going to start hearing rocks sing. And in simple faith, I say that sounds good to me. Why? Well, because we find places in the Bible, for example, I'm sure you're aware, aware of, if you're not, welcome to this, uh, this awareness. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul speaks about a rock that followed the children of Israel through the wilderness. Like a large boulder that rolled around, the rabbinical tradition teaches, that so as the children of Israel wandered, you can look at it, I'm not just bringing this up, I've got the passage, of oh, big boulders following them around. Weird. But I guess if it's in the Bible, it's God. He can do whatever he wants to. Um, rabbinical tradition is the one that promotes that, but 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that rock is Jesus. So something about the rock was a picture of Jesus, who is the solid rock on, upon which we stand. But you've got to still figure out what does it mean that the rock followed him. I'll just throw out to you, I, I think it has reference to the rock that Moses initially struck. And I think the river followed them along as they journeyed through the wilderness, but it could have been a boulder rolling along. We also see in Romans 8, verses 18 through 22, that creation itself, that means all inanimate things, happen to be groaning within themselves, waiting for the redemption, for Jesus to come back and lift the curse. And so there's something that we can't even fathom how beautiful it's going to get when Jesus removes that curse. And for those of you that aren't colorblind like me, the colors are going to be really intensified. Maybe I'll have no more colorblindness. That would be great, too. And be able to see things as they are, just beautiful, unbelievable. The, um, the smells are going to be greater. There's going to be testifying of the Lord in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Maybe the birds are going to sound lovely to us and not annoying to us. Um, and so many things could be said there, but it's clear that Romans 8, 18 through 22, and then Jeremiah 12, 4 and 11 speaks about the ground mourning. So there's an allusion to something with inanimate becoming animate. Um, I could go on and talk about Psalm 96, 11, heavens, earth, sea, trees are going to proclaim him. Psalms 98, 7 through 9, seas roar, rivers clap, the hills sing. Psalm 114, 7, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. Jesus even said earlier in Matthew 3, 9, to the religious leaders, who claimed, I am in the club because I come from Abraham, he says, God is able to raise up offspring from the stones. Like he can, so he's used this stone terminology before. So perhaps that's what he's talking about. Here's another option. Maybe as he's walking down the west side of the Mount of Olives, he's seeing, if you've been there, you've seen this in Jerusalem, all the sepulchers, all the stone sepulchers. And maybe he's making a proclamation 
that we find in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, that there will be a resurrection. You keep quiet, and I'm going to raise people up from the dead, and they will testify of me. Now, it is interesting to me that in Matthew 27, we see in verses 51 and 52 that he did raise people from the dead. And I think maybe, maybe there's a connection to that song of the month, the dancing in the streets. You're like, what's that say about the gospel message. Maybe if you saw a loved one that had died and you saw him again, do you think there's some celebrating going on? Yeah, I think so. Quite a bit, in fact. And maybe he's just saying, look, you guys, you tell them to be quiet. The sepulchers will open and it's going to be a beautiful scene. Maybe he was alluding to the fact that there was a stone that was rolled away just a week earlier and it's Lazarus' stone and he is walking around living today. And in a week from now, gentlemen, another stone is going to be rolled away. You follow me? The resurrection, that's what next Sunday is all about. He said, the rocks will cry out. I don't know. Here's another one. Maybe he's referring to prophetically the lively stones in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. If I tell this group to be quiet, there is coming a day when the church shall proclaim my name and my fame and my glory. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so it would be for us to join the choir of worshipers as we're singing and as we're listening, as we're responding. Is Jesus saying, if, you, if I tell them to be quiet, all these things could be possible. I don't know, maybe I've frustrated you because I've given you too many options Let me tell you the one I actually think it is. Because so far, I haven't given you one that I totally buy into yet. Now, there's truth in everything I've just said about creation groaning and that the fact that God can do whatever he wants to whenever he wants to, including a boulder following the children of Israel, and that he did raise Lazarus from the dead, and he will rise again from the dead, and he wants us to praise him. But actually, where should we go? And this is a lesson in our interpretation of Scripture. Where should we go to find the answer to what in the world is he talking about? We look at our Bible, and if you have a Bible that has a footnote in it, it will actually tell you that he is quoting from a minor prophet. And that should start our journey in understanding what he's referring to. And what we end up finding out is he's quoting from Habakkuk 2.11. I want to encourage you to turn over there so that you can see this with me. I think this is, to me, pretty fascinating because, again, who is he rebuking? He's rebuking the religious leaders, right? And the religious leaders are saying, teacher, you great one, rebuke your disciples. And he responds, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. And Look what it says in Habakkuk 2.11. It says, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now that in and of itself is not helpful yet, because it's just, why is he quoting from this text? Well, I want you to make a quick connection with me. If you look at this text, you'll see in Habakkuk, have you found it yet? I know it's harder to find, it's not as usual for us, right? In the Minor Prophets, you'll notice a pattern that's in the book of Habakkuk, and we'll see five woes. In chapter 2, we see a woe mentioned in verse 6, a woe mentioned in verse 9, and a woe mentioned in verse 12, a woe mentioned in verse 15, and a woe that is seen laid out for us. It starts actually in verse 19, but it's introduced in verse 18. Please do not disconnect because I'm talking about a minor prophet and the woes. Just listen to me. 
I've alliterated something for you to try to understand that here Habakkuk the prophet is prophesying against the nation of Babylon. In, in, in just real simple statements, Jesus, uh, the prophet Habakkuk is saying, you are going to be judged because of the way you've plundered the nations, because of your excessive pride, because you've been so perverse, and because you are ones that get people drunk and then look at their nakedness. And you're doing all sorts of corruption to creation itself, and in the end, you are ones who are worshiping other gods, paganism, false gods, idolatry, the gods that are made of wood and stone that actually don't have a voice. And it's interesting that the statement is made in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse um, 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing awake and to a silent stone arise. It seems to condemn the very thing Jesus was about to do. So Habakkuk says, woe to those who says to a stone arise. Jesus says, if uh, I tell them to be silent, then the stones will cry out. So there's got to be something more going on here. And here is what I think is going on here. I think Jesus is reminding the Pharisees that they are ones who have bad motives and he sees right into their heart. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, we see seven woes to the religious leaders. Jesus is calling on them as knowledgeable of Scripture to say, listen, guys, I can see right through your false teacher Censure your disciples. I can see right into your heart, and Jesus can do the same thing for you and the same thing for me. He knows. That's his response. He knows today whether or not when I said, are you an obedient follower of Jesus, or are you kind of one that's kind of casually following? Are you a seeker? Are you one who would consider yourself a fan of Jesus until things don't work out, or are you actually a genuine follower of Jesus? He knows. He can see into your heart, and I want to encourage you to give to him what he's calling from you. And notice how this is further emphasized. Turn back to Luke, and I'll end with this, with application. In verses 41 through 44, Jesus does something only in the Gospel of Luke. In all of our accounts of the triumphal entry, it's only here that he weeps. We saw him weeping in John eleven thirty-five. 35, the shortest verse in the New Testament, right? Jesus wept. Well, here he weeps again. There he wept in a private sort of way. And here he's weeping publicly. And notice in verse 41, it talks about how he wept. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is a picture from a particular place that I had the privilege of standing on, looking over Jerusalem. So Jesus coming down, that thing didn't exist, but the hill existed, okay? And he's looking over it, and he starts weeping. Something really is bothering him. And notice what he says. The text is very small. You might want to look on your own Bible, but this is what it says. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He already told them. Glory in God, glory to God in the highest. Peace to all men. Right? That's already in Luke chapter 2. The declaration of the angels. If you would only understand the peace I intend, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The same type of hidden from the eyes that we see in Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're hidden. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's some powerful statements that Jesus makes here. 
And I want you to understand the peace that we're looking for, that I think the disciples were looking for, was peace on earth. But actually Jesus came this time to bring peace in heaven. Now follow me. He will bring peace on earth. That's coming. But he came to bring peace in heaven. There would be no peace on earth, but thanks to Christ's work on the cross, there's peace with God in heaven. Romans 5.1, Colossians 1.20. The appeal today is be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.17-21. through 21. This is what they needed to understand, but they were missing it, and so they, were, they would have to go through some serious turmoil. He was warning them. He's talking about the events of AD 70 when the city of Jerusalem is sacked by the Romans, completely destroyed, every stone overturned. Notice this statement. I, I hope this resonates with you. When, when the crowd was rejoicing, Jesus was weeping. So they're saying, glory to God in the highest. You're the king. You're awesome. The, the Pharisees, rebuke him. Tell him to be quiet. Jesus starts crying. Like, What's going on? Everyone's happy about you. Why are you crying? There he wept quietly, but here he uttered a loud lamentation like one mourning over the dead. In this, he was like the prophet Jeremiah who wept bitterly over the destruction of Jerusalem. Jonah looked on Nineveh and hoped it would be destroyed, while Jesus looked on Jerusalem and wept because it had destroyed itself. And notice the different looks. This is coming from the Bible expository commentary. No matter where Jesus looked, he found cause for weeping. If he looked back, he saw how the nation had wasted its opportunities and been ignorant of their time of visitation. If he looked within, he saw spiritual ignorance and blindness in their hearts. They should have known who he was, for God had given them his word and sent his messengers to prepare the way. As he looked around, Jesus saw religious activities that accomplished very little. The temple had become a den of thieves, and the religious leaders were out to kill him. The city was filled with pilgrims celebrating a festival, but the hearts of the people were heavy with sin and life's burdens. As Jesus looked ahead, he wept as he saw the terrible judgment that was coming on the nation, the city, and the temple. In AD 70, the Romans would come and after a siege of 143 days, kill 600,000 Jews, take thousands more captive, and then destroy the temple and the city. Why did all this happen? Because the people did not know that God had visited them. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, John 1.11 we will not have this man to reign over us, they say in Luke 19, 14. What will you do with Jesus? So I'm thinking when he says, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. He was like, you guys have no idea. The rocks one day will cry out. They will be destroyed, just like it said in Habakkuk. Babylon will not stay elevated in its arrogance and its pride. There will be a day when they will be humbled. Application for you. I want to encourage you to think about how are you processing this week, this Passion Week. I mean, today, it is this wonderful day of Palm Sunday, and that's why I'm pausing to reflect on it. And I want to remind you that we have an opportunity this week to reflect on Jesus as King, as Savior. How are you responding? So I've got a couple suggestions for you. You could purchase Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman. I have a reference to that in your notes Ask yourself the question, am I a seeker? 
Am I a fan, which seems to be a good deal, but actually it's not. A fan is just casual. A follower is what we want to be. Which one are you? I want to also encourage you to take a step this Friday and join us at 7 to 8 o'clock at 620 Powdersville, Maine. We're going to celebrate Good Friday. It's going to be a, a wonderful time hearing a couple testimonies, celebrating around the Lord's Supper. You're all invited. We'd love to have you there. In concert, at the same time as we're having the Good Friday service, we're also having the college students are having a bond ship, is what they call it, over at the Sealy Lane property. I have addresses and times to all, for all of that, and I want to encourage you, don't go through this week like it's the same week that's always been. Actually, we actually took out the Wednesday night community group to free up your time so that you could consider coming Friday night. So I'm getting as practical as possible when we're talking about what will you do with Jesus, Take some time this week to do something. In fact, could I encourage you to consider at your meal, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, sometime, take some time to follow this reading plan through the Passion Week. It's a simple plan. It's in the notes provided for you. There's a lot of uh, blessing in this so that we can stay in tune. I just can't even begin to imagine how great Sunday next week will be if all of our hearts have been warmed by the word this way. We're going to sing with great rejoicing We are going to have a wonderful time praising our King of Kings, which should be every week, but boy, it's got to be Easter Sunday, right? It's got to be a, there's got to be real motivation because he is not dead, he is risen, he is risen indeed. I want to also encourage you, as we've looked at this text, how Jesus was able to see into the hearts of the Pharisees, and I ask you the simple question, What sin has the Holy Spirit exposed in your life today that needs immediate attention? I may not have even mentioned it, but you know, because he's good like that, to bring to your attention. You're aware that he can see into your heart, and he's calling you to repent and turn to him. That's his desire, for you to have peace with God in heaven, and you can have that. You can choose that today. You can turn to him. Listen to this verse, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repent of your sin. Receive forgiveness. You don't forgive yourself. You don't figure out how to, I just can't forgive myself. If that's what you keep saying, you're missing the point of the scriptures. You don't do the forgiving of yourself. God does the forgiving of you through Jesus. Accept that forgiveness, that cleansing, and then reach out for help. We have told you many times, and I'm bringing it up again, that we have a wonderful resource. It starts with our community groups. So within the community groups, as you are going through struggles, then you would have an opportunity to connect with someone and say, you know, can, can we meet and talk, have some coffee, or skip the coffee? Let's just talk. And I need some help. That's where it starts. Okay, and if you're not in a community group, I want to encourage you to think about rearranging your schedule if possible to join one. We also have an opportunity for you to receive biblical counsel. And I've given you the link to the website, PBC Care, which is to our biblical counseling ministry. And if you have a desire to finally get right with God, that starts right now. But you know, it's so much more than you saying, I'm ready to get right. Now, like, what do I do? Right, because it's not simply you, God, forgive me. Okay, I'm still challenged. I'm still struggling. I still have those thoughts of depression or anxiety or I'm struggling with hatred or my mouth is terrible and I could go on and on talking about porn or obsession or infatuation and God has answers in the word. And I want you to find help. And so I have a link there for you to consider. But I ask you just a simple question. What will you do 
with Jesus. I can tell you this, he sees your heart and he knows, and this is awesome. He loves you and wants you to be right with God through him. And you could do that today. Let's bow our heads and our hearts. God, I pray that you would minister 